2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machiah, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So the king so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machiah, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Morning, everyone. Let's uh, pray as we come to this wonderful part of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within and among us. Uh, we pray that uh, you'd set aside hindrances and distractions, that we concentrate, that we delight at and tremble at your word and uh, be uh, made more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, brothers and sisters, if you had to put an adjective between the words God's and kindness, next slide, what would you put. Now, if you grew up in the generation I did and you don't know what an adjective is because uh, the crazies on the board of education thought it would stifle our creativity, uh, it's a describing word and my favourite one is big fat because I think of my big fat Greek wedding. Uh, what would you put, as little insight into the mind of Ben here, what would you put between gods and kindness? Perhaps, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are thinking this already, perhaps you'd have gods loving kindness. And that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? God demonstrated his love in the most extraordinary, kind way possible. Why? We all still sin as Christ died for us, Romans 5. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son of the world that we might live through him. He might rightly have God's loving kindness. Perhaps you'd opt for God's amazing kindness, given how immense his grace is to those he has granted the gift of salvation. The world's most well-known hymn, of course, speaks of God's amazing grace, which 
you know, it could be synonymous with God's extraordinary and amazing kindness. That would be a good choice. Perhaps, though, if you're pessimistic or you might be in a stage uh, where you're experiencing significant grief or hardship or trouble at the moment, you might have the rather saddening response of thinking that God's kindness is somehow temporarily or even permanently out of reach. Uh, if that's you at the moment, uh, you're actually in good company with some of the people who wrote some of the Psalms of Lament. It's not uh, a weird, alien, foreign experience to the people of God uh, to feel that way, but you ought to be pleased to know that even if things currently do feel like the kindness of God is out of reach, in reality, being in Christ means we are never without the kindness of our loving Heavenly Father, though I do recognise that can be cold comfort uh, if delivered at the wrong time. But for me... What I've gleaned from God's Word to us today, as I've looked at it earlier throughout the week in 2 Samuel 9, is that like so many things when it comes to the ultimate truth of God's revelation, the word I would choose is almost as offensive as it is wonderful. I'd call it God's scandalous kindness, a kindness so extreme as to be perceived as morally questionable, though of course it's not, but to be perceived as morally questionable. Now, why have I landed there this week? Well, hopefully you'll find out as we go through this rather heartwarming chapter that God is speaking to us this morning. Now, over the last couple of weeks, uh, in case you've missed it, we've seen that David has uh, been established as the king over God's people Israel. He's replaced Saul, who's now dead. David has uh, received a palace and he's eliminated now. We saw last week the threat of invasion from Israel's surrounding enemies that were sort of north, south, east and west. And with all that in place, David now wants to show kindness to anyone who might still be left in the family of his dearly departed friend, Jonathan. And so verse 1, our section starts, David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And this isn't just some random act of kindness kind of thing that you hear politicians or organisations doing for publicity. And it's not just some kind of sentimental thing driven by his grief at losing his good friend, Jonathan. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20... David had actually made a pact with Jonathan. Uh, we call it a covenant. Jonathan would give up his own claim to the throne in favour of David. And David, in turn, would show kindness to Jonathan and his family. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'll put the words on the screen, it's from verse 14, Jonathan said to David, David, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And if you were here last week, we saw in, in chapter 8, that's exactly what has happened. All the enemies are cut off. So David really would have had this in his mind. So verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. This is why David is keen to show kindness to Jonathan's remaining family members. He's actually keeping a covenant that he'd been very pleased to make. And we can't fail to notice that the kindness that David wants to show Jonathan is the Lord's 
kindness. It's like the Lord's kindness, we're told. Just as much as it's the fulfilment of a promise that came about due to a friendship. See, the interest of David fulfilling his promise and the interest of God showing his kindness are, well, they're aligned. God, who would call himself the father of the king, and God's king, who would be called the son, would work to achieve the same goal. You might even say the son will do what he sees the the father doing. And so in verse 1 of our passage, whilst David wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, in the next couple of verses, we see that that's synonymous now with showing the kindness of God. So from verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. I like his Hebrew name better, by the way, Ziba. That's so much cooler, isn't it? Ziba. His his name was Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show, now look at it now, God's kindness? Same thing. And just as David's desire comes as a result of a promise that he'd made to Jonathan, well, so God's desire to show kindness comes as a result of his promise, in particular, his promise to Abraham. You see, with the promises to Abraham, you can sort of follow their trajectory up to this point and you know that once you've got God's people in God's place, under God's rule, now channeled through the king, that you would rightly expect God's blessing to start sort of emanating from Jerusalem and outward toward the families of the earth. Now, it turns out that there is someone in the household of Saul to whom David can now bestow the blessings of God. And he's presented to us as the lowliest of characters, lame in both feet and referring to himself as a dead dog in our passage. So continuing from verse 3. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. We might wonder at this point, if we're a little bit astute, if maybe Ziba doesn't trust that David actually wants to show kindness to the people left in Saul's house. You see, instead of naming Mephibosheth, Ziba simply describes him, before even saying his name, as oh, lame in both feet, implying that he, you know, he's no real threat to David. So David you know, need not have him assassinated kind of thing. That could be the case. Or it might also be the case that we're to wonder if Ziba is actually a good character or not. Uh, we find out in the second half of this chapter that he is a man of means... He's got lots of sons and lots of servants, so he's very well-to-do. And he's a servant in the house of Saul, so if he's loyal to the house of Saul, why isn't he looking after Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, when he clearly has the means to do so? We don't know. Spoiler alert, yeah, he turns out bad later on, but we're just going to park that for the time. In any event, In verse 5, David has this lame man, we're told, uh, brought from Lodabar to Jerusalem. Now, geographically, if Jerusalem was Canberra, Lodabar would be Sydney CBD, right? Very rough, right? Canberra, Sydney. 
And for a crippled guy, that would have been a considerable bit of travel. Given that he's in the line of Saul and that David's men are probably the ones I assume would have had to carry him, and as a cripple, he doesn't have much say about where he's going to go, you know, they've taken him, he'd understandably be rather fearful of what kind of fate would await him once he comes before David. So verse 6, though I'm told by a good source, a good commentator, that it likely would have caused him considerable pain when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, just in case you forgot, came to David, he, and literally, it's better than the NIV, fell on his face prostrate. And it will be reasonable for Mephibosheth to wonder whether this is the last time he would do such an act, whether he would get up after this or if he'd be executed there and then. A direct descendant of the rival king over whom David now had victory, the usual course of action would be that his fa- he and his family would be eradicated. The narrator hints that what happens next is an astounding and unexpected display of kindness. You see, the narrator doesn't say it's the king who speaks, even though he has been called that, it's just David. And David, unlike Ziba, says his name, Mephibosheth. And I think it wouldn't be too far a stretch to say it's probably done in a very warm and affirming tone of voice. Perhaps perplexed, but certainly still fearful, at your service, he replied. And then comes the astounding confirmation that instead of the expected curse, Mephibosheth would receive unexpected blessings. So verse 7, don't be afraid. Ever noticed how in the Bible when someone says, don't be afraid, it's almost a really good blessing that's going to follow, right? Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. In this time and culture, table fellowship would have been considered a huge honour. And in this case, it would have been way above and beyond any convention and without much, if any, precedent. But the kindness on view here is even more extreme than that. It's more extreme than what you or I might imagine on first glance. See, if you remember when David originally took Jerusalem... Uh, it was uh, occupied this group, group of people there called the Jebusites, and they mocked David and his men, saying, a bunch of blind and lame guys that have a better chance of getting in here than you and your men. And so when inevitably David, of course, did conquer it, and you saw in Oliver's wonderful sermon a number of weeks ago, uh, they flipped, they did a uno-reverse, I think there's a phrase, on, on the, the blind and lame, and it became a saying, the blind and lame will never enter the palace. Now, I know it's directed at Jebusites and it's obviously metaphoric, but there's no doubt that it would have easily been on people's minds the moment they heard that David had admitted a cripple into permanent table fellowship in his palace, the palace where the blind and lame will never enter. People would almost certainly have been shocked and possibly even questioning the soundness of David's action here. Mephibosheth himself was one of those who was in disbelief. Verse 8, 
Mephibosheth, note, bowed down, and I think this implies that it's the second time he's done it, and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And in many ways, it is a fair question. The house of Saul had once been very powerful and impressive. You remember the description that King Saul had applied to him was that his head and shoulders were above everybody else's. Now, just two generations on in his very depleted family, we learn about the feet of his grandson and both of them are lame. He'd be no threat to David. And in Mephibosheth's mind, at least, David would lose nothing and could stand again a lot by either ignoring or assassinating him. But as we've already seen, David, like God, had once made a covenant to give blessing to the family of Jonathan. And like God, David delighted to keep his promise. More than that, David himself, if you remember, had once been in the position of coming before the powerful king of Israel. And at that time, David had also referred to himself as a dead dog. Saul Who am I, a dead dog or a flea, that you would come and hunt my life? You see, apart from the the literal crippled feet, David knew what it was like to be in Mephibosheth's shoes because he'd been there himself. The king that God has put in charge is the king that knows what it's like to be a normal everyday person who has normal everyday struggles. It's like... He can sympathise and empathise with his people. But even more than that, again, it was God himself who had determined to show the kindness to Mephibosheth. I'll tell you why. If you can remember all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, remember how we did that like a year and a half ago or something, right? All the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. There was a barren woman who was a nobody from a nobody's family, exactly the kind of person God uses to do amazing things. There was a barren woman and uh, the Lord opened her womb such that she bore a son who, as we know, became the prophet Samuel. Her name, of course, was Hannah. And when the Lord answered her prayer, he also gave her, I think, prophetic insight into the kinds of things that God would do. In her prayer, Hannah said, and I'll put the words on the screen, she said, the Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour or a place of honour. See, when God chooses to exalt the poor and needy, like Mephibosheth, He also does it in a way that's permanent. Read with me from the next few verses, verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. So there's the, the needy being provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. We're told that to see now what a man of means Mephibosheth has become. These are all his servants. Then Ziba said to the king, 
Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. And to this day, I can't work out whether that's very honouring or whether it's said through gritted teeth. I can't help, for those who know Harry Potter, I can't help but think of Creature, the house elf. He has to obey, even though he hates the person that he's called to obey, right? It could be that. Your servant will do whatever the Lord my king commands his servant to do. Or it could be, no, this is really right and good, I'll do whatever. In any event, continuing verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Remember Hannah's prayer? He seats them with princes. Oh, that's what's happened and that's going to be his future now. The king's kindness... Uh, is bestowed on Mephibosheth in such a way that it's not just a one-off. This, this, is, this is how it is from now on. This is the new status quo. He's going to be like a prince for the rest of his life. And so Zeba, along with his many sons and servants, is back to what he possibly should have been doing all along. And Mephibosheth is literally seated with princes and figuratively has inherited a throne of honour. And all this is a permanent arrangement. The kindness of God, which is channeled through the ruling of his king, is greatly bestowed on the last person you'd expect it to be given to. The king's kindness, which really also is God's kindness, resulted in a permanent honouring of Mephibosheth, which in turn also probably ensured that the family line of Jonathan would continue. That's the blessing that David could, could give. Uh, we're told in the next verse, I think, and it's for this reason, verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Zeba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. Now, with that, we could come to the end of this wonderful and heartwarming account. And if you've been a Christian or read your Bible for anything more than three weeks, you'll see what a perfect, beautiful illustration it is of how God's true King, the Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed those who are undeserving. Except the narrator couldn't end there. He couldn't help but to emphasise the notion that God's kindness... Both saw Mephibosheth set up for life and was also of such a rare and exceptional nature as to stick out like a sore thumb. Hence, we have that ending that sounds a bit funny. Verse 13, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, presence of the king and also presence of God, because he always ate at the king's table, full stop, no, oh, he was lame in both feet. You see how that, that emphasis is given through repetition there? This guy who we've now thrice been told, twice in this chapter, is lame in both feet, who refers to himself as a dead dog, a descendant of a failed dynasty, is now a permanent resident in the king's city, enjoying table fellowship like a prince in the palace where the lame should not enter. The narrator wants us to see the almost scandalous nature, the, the great upset, the unexpected nature of the kindness of God channeled through his king. An obvious thing about Mephibosheth is that, of course, he was deeply humble. It pained him, but he bowed down twice. He was deeply humble because his situation, frankly, wouldn't allow anything else. Unable to defend himself and expecting death, he could only fall prostrate before God's victorious king. And that's precisely the kind of person that God delights to show his amazing and ongoing and, frankly, scandalous kindness. So to put it very simply, I think we must say that God's 
scandalous, that's my choosing, kindness, comes to those who humble themselves before his king. And given that Mephibosheth now had a permanent place in the palace, so he lives in a palace, or eats in a palace, and, spoiler alert, will later show tremendous loyalty to the Lord's anointed, we're not going to see that till next year, but it's an important spoiler, just like David himself would show uh, honour to the Lord's anointed, I'm going to add to that sentence that those who receive it become like him. Those who receive the grace of God's king become like the king, therefore, in a way, they become like God. Now, of course, I hope it could go without saying that what David was to Mephibosheth, of course, Jesus is to us. Having been raised to the right hand of God, Jesus' kingdom is now established and he's in the process of making all his enemies his footstool and showing kindness to those that God has predestined to salvation. Of course, it could easily be the case for someone here or someone watching online uh, that you've not yet experienced the kindness of God's King Jesus. The kindness of having all your sins, past, present, future, no longer counted against you because Jesus suffered the curse of death that you might enjoy the blessing of eternal life. A common reason people don't come to know Jesus as their King and their Saviour before it's too late, is because our pride simply won't let us see the truth that our sinfulness is so real and so damning, such that we really can't get to the point of humbling ourselves before him. We can't stomach the pain of falling prostrate before God's risen Messiah. And if that's you, the question I want to ask you is, in terms of your undeservedness of God's kindness... Have you realised that basically, basically you're a lame, dead dog? Basically everyone is a Mephibosheth. Have you realised there's actually no reason Jesus should take notice of you because of the way you've never taken proper notice of him? Will you recognise that one day every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess before him that Jesus Christ is Lord? The difference will be whether or not it's just willing or unwilling. For those who bow unwillingly, it won't come to a good end. But to those who acknowledge the rule of Jesus now, you too will be seated at the king's table in his dwelling place for all eternity. If you can't yet humble yourself, if you can't accept the idea that basically before God you're a lame, dead dog, then frankly you haven't realised just how much you need Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour. But, for the rest of us, secondly, are you and am I rejoicing in the King's kindness? Might sound like a strange thing to say, wouldn't you think Mephibosheth is like, he'd be jumping for joy, well he can't, he's lame, but you know, he'd be metaphorically jumping for joy, right, given what he's got, well, not necessarily. A really common problem for Christians, and I'm certainly included in this, is that having been put at the king's table, we keep doing Jesus the disservice 
of thinking that his ongoing kindness to us is something that he gives reluctantly or something that he gets tired of showing. You know, when Mephibosheth shows up for the 60th meal, is David going, why did I get this guy here? We continue to struggle with sin, so we think we need to be cautious, sparing, when it comes to receiving his forgiveness yet again. You know a great remedy for that common and widespread problem for a lot of Christians? Yep, you guessed it, Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. It's been more than five minutes since I've recommended it, so here we go again. As you've heard me say in the past, my vote for the best Christian book ever written apart from the Bible, read it. Here's a favourite couple of paragraphs that deal directly with this issue, and I quote, It was the joyous anticipation of seeing his people made invincibly clean that sent Jesus through his arrest, death, burial and resurrection. When we today partake of that atoning work, coming to Christ for forgiveness, communing with him despite our sinfulness, we are laying hold of Christ's own deepest longing and joy. Our unbelieving hearts tread cautiously here. Is it not presumptuous audacity to draw on the mercy of Christ in an unfiltered way? Shouldn't we be measured and reasonable, careful not to pull too much on him? Would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured, reasonable way? Our trouble is that we do not take the scripture seriously when it speaks of us as Christ's body. Christ is the head, we are his own body parts. How does a head feel about his own flesh? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, He nourishes and cherishes it, Ephesians 5. And then Paul makes the explicit connection to Christ, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. How do we care for a wounded body part? We nurse it, bandage it, protect it, give it time to heal. For that body part isn't just a close friend, it is part of us. So with Christ and believers, we are part of him. That is why the risen Christ asks a persecutor of his people, why are you persecuting me, Acts 9.4. Jesus Christ is comforted when you draw from the riches of his atoning work because his own body is getting healed. Isn't that a wonderful little chapter from Mr. Dane Ortland? Go and buy the book. Last but not least, having received the kindness of God's King, are you showing that kindness to others? What an extraordinary thing that Mrs. McGregor rightly got up here just before and said a big thank you to all the stuff, all the little acts of service, big little unknown most people god knows about the, the, the most the most kindness you show to other people is is probably going to be unnoticed except not by god and that's what actually matters 
Uh, and by the way, it's actually right that that's the case for his household. The scriptures say we're to do good to all people, especially the household of God, especially toward one another. Good on you. Thank you, Bev, for that wonderful encouragement. You know what? I actually seriously thought when she said about getting on the meal roster, I thought, well, I don't know if I want to inflict myself on another person with it. But she said, you know what, you'd normally cook, which is nothing. But I could actually cook one. I actually thought maybe it would be right. I'm a minister of the word and prayer. I should get ahead with serving other people. I should lead by example. I can cook like two things that are half decent. So maybe if it only get called twice a year, maybe I could do one of the other. I could put up my hand for being on the meal roster. But regardless of how it is you serve, and especially serve in the household of God, one of the best services you can ever do is actually be around the people. You ever wonder why we keep banging on about the importance of in-person church, about the importance of growth groups? It puts you in the vicinity of other Christians, it allows you to serve them with greater ease. And the service can itself just be showing up. You're not committed to regular fellowship in person, very hard to be a mature Christian. But of course we show that kindness to our enemies as well, don't we? Wonderful that we were praying for the persecuted church in our International Day of Prayer today. And I suspect, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of people prayed for the persecutors that they might find the truth, turn to Jesus before it's too late because the punishment they face for inflicting such horror on the body of Jesus Christ himself will be a very deserved eternal damnation. And I hope and pray that they do turn before it's late. And nonetheless, I do thank God for his amazing justice that he will bring to fruition on the last day. But in the meantime, we're to pray for our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, says Jesus. Look for ways to show the kind of kindness that King David showed Mephibosheth and that King Jesus showed us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you've installed as King through his resurrection from the dead. And that though we ought to be terrified at his presence, given the way that we've frankly been his enemies, then in your scandalous kindness, his death turned out to be the payment for our sins, his resurrection, the means by which he gives us new life, and that he longs to embrace us. Heavenly Father, may we uh, continue to throw ourselves on his kindness and mercy, knowing that's a deep desire of Jesus, that we come to him time and again for forgiveness. If there's anyone among us here or watching today that as yet hasn't come to accept the kindness of Jesus, please, Father, convict them of the truth of their desperate need, of the importance of seeing ourselves as lame, dead dogs, given your goodness and our sinfulness. And Heavenly Father, may we continue, may we be spurred on to show kindness not only to our enemies but also to the household of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.